You're listening to an exclusive podcast with the UCLA Radio News team. Hey everyone, my name is Ashley and welcome back to The Weekly. With so much going on here in the U.S., we often lose sight of international issues and policy. Here are Jared and Allison to tell us more about what's going on in Libya. Up until 2011, uh, the country was pretty famously run by President Muammar al-Qaddafi, who at one time was a great leader. He was preaching egalitarianism, um, an agency for African states, but then became a corrupted authoritarian leader who got rich off of oil money until he was ousted by protesters. So obviously there, uh, there seems to be a theme here. So the conflict now is complicated to say the least. Uh, there's probably more in here than can be described in you know, just a, a little radio show. As obviously like every international issue we talk about, there's a lot of historical context for what's happening. Um, but we're gonna at least try to understand what's happening right now. So there are three major groups in this conflict. Uh, the government of National Accord, led by Prime Minister Fayez al-Sarraj, who is backed by a coalition of United Nations peacekeepers, including the U.S. and most EU leaders. And their allies include the Mistrata, which is an ethnic group that has been important in the fight against Islamic states in the northwestern part of the country. Um, uh, the Islamic state, I'm sorry. And then there's the, the next group is the Libyan National Army, which is led by General Khalifa Haftar. Um, And this is the major opposition force, which has seized the majority of the land in the region and often is backed by peoples as they have been successful in pushing out other militant groups in the southern part of the country. And his forces are backed by Egypt, the UAE, and most notably, France and Russia. Um, And Russia is selling his army weapons, but we don't really know why France is backing him and the rest of the UN is not. That's kind of strange that they're taking that position. Yeah, I was listening along and then I was like, okay, like this makes sense. And then you said France and Russia. I was like, Well, Russia, yeah, they love to stoke the fire, but who knows what France is doing? Yeah, what is France doing? That's a really good question. Yeah, so if anyone knows, you can uh, message us because we'd love to to find out more. Um, And then the next group, er, sorry, um, Antonio Gutierrez is the Secretary General of the UN And he was there last week trying to host peace talks between the two parties and bring the country together. And a conference was set for next week to try and reach an agreement on a provisional government that would last until formal voting could be cast at the end of the year. Um, But clearly, this failed on Monday. Against the wishes of his foreign supporters, General Haftar decided to lead a violent assault on Tripoli, which is the capital of the country and its last remaining area held by the legitimate government. Um, and because he's using so many resources to capture Tripoli, there's a power vacuum in the south and east, which is already being exploited by other militant groups. So far, 56 people are dead, 8,000 have fled their homes, General Haftar seized the airport and then lost the airport, and the legitimate government has taken 200 prisoners. So, obviously there's a lot to discuss here. Um, the UN is being blocked because of France's veto vote, because they're in the, they're in the Perm 5 in the Security Council, which that's that's really interesting, um, and then the idea that the idea that General Haftar's army represents security to the people from other violent military groups, while the UN and Prime Minister Al Sarraj represent more long-term peace and the form of de- formal democracy, it's super messy over there right now. 
Yeah, when I didn't even like, um, when I was doing my research, I didn't even see like the France stuff. Um, an article I read was concerned about like the displacement of the civilians there, like in Yeah, 8,000 people is nothing, that's not small. Yeah, here it says the um, WHO, WHO um, from the UN was concerned about disease outbreaks because so many people was displaced mm-hmm. and like stuff like tuberculosis and all that stuff as people were flooding out of the country and or just the areas and um they really were trying to call, the un was calling for uh ceasefire um and there's a lot of concerns about the civilians and also the loss of oil production because of like the internal war um and i don't know this is it seems like a really complicated issue i wish i knew more why france was backing it and it sounds so weird because it's like the un versus france and russia and i'm yeah. not sure what the solution is yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I feel like there's probably not a yeah. clear solution just based on, um, there, obviously there's there's you gotta look you gotta follow the money right. That's what they say in terms yeah. of figuring out what's happening and what's causing the conflict. But like you mentioned, that people are upset because oil prices are dropping or that there's not going to be oil being produced. Um, so I feel like that's probably a factor. I don't know why France. I don't know what France's ties to oil in Libya in Libya are, um, but. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I feel like I know a lot about Russia abusing their veto power in the UN, but I haven't really heard that much about France abusing their veto power. Yeah, and like I'm not sure what like the UN UN's supposed to do. Like I guess they just send more peacekeepers and try to like financially support Libya. But I know that's like also like a huge like topic in yeah, the international I mean, community. Yeah, peacekeepers are controversial. The UN itself is controversial. Like they they. You know, obviously, we're founded with this great ideal in mind, and with the intention of avoiding a, another world war. And hypothetically, that's working. Um, but also, none of their resolutions, none of the General Assembly's resolutions, are binding on any level. So it's like a lot of idealism in the end. And um, even with the peacekeepers, like you mentioned, like that is really contentious right now. Um, so I don't know. Like I feel like maybe sending more in wouldn't really be any any better. Yeah. If anything, it just shows like how how interventionist the UN is because like I know I think it might have been for Libya where the UN used um, its resources to overthrow the government for Gaddafi I might be mixing this up with another country and that was really controversial because um, they said it was because they're protecting the civilians but they're like enacting regime change which was like seen as an overstep from the international community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, everything I've learned about is, as far as the UN uh, is really, it's a tough balancing act, you know, because if you're trying to get together and have this semi-government, this institution that's supposed to facilitate like intergovernmental discussions, how do you give them enough power to be effective while also protecting sovereignty? Yeah. And like, if there's states that are not the states that are having conflicts, obviously, they're gonna they're gonna claim that they don't want their sovereignty to be infringed upon, um, and I think that's there. I feel like there isn't a good enough precedence that it does tend to vary a lot, issue to issue, especially based on which countries are having those issues. Like famously, Rwanda, like people didn't they waited too long to get involved, and um, it's just really it's hard to gauge until like issues are actually happening, what the level of response should be. And you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it, yeah, yeah, how do you how do you understand what's happening yeah. in the moment? What is what like is U.S. supposed to get involved? Which like probably never. <laughs> They're not gonna get involved. But like, 
I don't know, you have like the US, US as the main player, you have the UN, like you probably won't see those like be really heavily involved in defending like the government because that just looks super like, yeah. just uh, not right. respecting the sovereignty. That's where we draw the line. Yeah. <laughs> but also you're gonna see like a huge yeah. civil war with like civilians just being displaced and it's not like the US is it's gonna It's only gonna help. contribute to the refugee problem yeah. more globally too. So that's a really tough situation. Senators serve six-year terms, and representatives in the House serve two-year terms, but neither of these positions have set term limits. In the 1995 Supreme Court case, U.S. Term Limits Incorporated versus Thornton, state term limits were declared unconstitutional. Luca and Rutique dive into the pros and cons of the topic. What do you think about putting a term limit on senators? Well, just really quick. Um, so here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I support term limits, but the it's just hard because it's it's pretty arbitrary when the limit would go into effect you right know? like because for him six terms 36 years like that that's just objectively too long in yeah. my opinion right but at the same time he obviously was popular enough for his constituents to vote mm -hmm. for him especially since it's a statewide office um but that just screams political elitism to me mm -hmm. because if you're able to get reelected that many times um it essentially just means that nobody's going to challenge you mm -hmm. and not having an environment where challengers are allowed to kind of just bring new agenda items onto the national consciousness um i think that's really bad for politics and especially for the democratic party because we constantly need to be evolving and Joe Biden is definitely not the most progressive person. He's mm -hmm. never really been on the cutting edge of policy. Mm -hmm. um, and 36 years from 30 to 66 is just too long, in my opinion. Yeah. I think you need to foster some kind of competition within the party just to make sure things are constantly moving. I'd agree with that. And that's where incumbents and advantage plays such a huge role. Because like yeah. then people, it, it normalizes your politicians that are in office like you don't feel the need to vote anymore because like you know they're gonna win anyway so. exactly um especially with people like biden um he's just by nature of who he is he's got a lot going for him already just yeah. as like a straight white man with experience like it's going to be pretty hard to knock somebody off that pedestal mm -hmm. if they've been consistently serving for 36 years you know right lastly we have the perfect way to round out the episode WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has been arrested, but discourse continues as his presence lingers in the form of a furry friend. Following up and transitioning into the fun stories this week, we have something WikiLeaks related, as you found. Yeah, I found, so this whole time that he was in the embassy, he had a cat. Um, the cat's name was Mi Michi, I think? Michi, or something like that. And um, it's got a Twitter. It's at Embassy Cat. So if you want to go check out Julian Assange's Twitter for his cat, do it. Apparently, like when he first got the cat, it was super active, and um, you know he's posting a lot. And then like in 2016, he posted maybe three times, and in 2017, he posted like twice, and in 2018, he didn't post anything. And so like I was kind of like intrigued, like what's going on? Why is he getting less excited about this cat? And it turns out that probably most likely it was a publicity stunt. He was telling people that his his kids got it for him when they didn't. And uh, he was like, oh, if I have this cute cat, 
like people will like me more. He let little kids in Ecuador have a competition where they got to name it. So he was like really trying to, it's all a PR stunt basically was what I was reading. That's funny because I know Martin Shkreli is like really involved with his like animals. I think he has a cat and like often in his live streams, he was like petting it and like, I don't know. <laughs> it just might be just like one of those things that these, uh, I don't know. I feel like they fit into like the yeah. genius, a little eccentric, eccentric like evil people ish. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's. Do. I was shocked. He's only forty seven, but if you look at him, oh it, he God. looks like Father Time. Yeah, he looks you know? like he's he looks Santa like he's Claus. lived like seven lifetimes. I'm sure staying in like one place yeah. for seven years would do that to you. Yeah, and maybe that honestly, that's maybe why he got the cat. Like even if it is a PR stunt, he's probably a little lonely in yeah. there too. I think you do need companionship. I just think it's funny. Like you created his Twitter. It's like those stuff that like um. I don't know. Like you can see on Instagram, you're like, um, like my. I your follow mom, like or... a golden doodle on yeah, Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, <laughs> uh, like a, a person creates like uh, Instagram for their dog or for like yeah. their little kid. That's like, I don't Look know. Look how like, cute a year, year. my <laughs> animal is. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm sad, but here's yeah. this cute thing. Exactly. And just post <laughs> pictures on walks. But if you do follow it, just know that there probably won't be any more updates well, in the future. Well, there's also, yeah, I guess some controversy about what happens to the cat now. Like if if Assange is out of the embassy. What's next? And uh, I'm not quite sure. There hasn't been any conclusion on where the cat is, but apparently it is no longer in the embassy. Justice for the cat is what. Yeah. Well, at should embassy bring cat, yeah. like follow them. Follow <laughs> them and make sure location. their story is heard. We cannot let yeah. this cat go unheard. Thanks for listening to the weekly, and be sure to tune into the news department's daily programming at 4 p.m. on UCLA Radio.com. Reporting for UCLA Radio News, I'm Ashley Hoffman.